Thank you, my friend Shumi. I hope you still have your Bible open, First Family, to uh, 2 Kings chapter 18. We're talking today about a character that maybe you haven't heard a lot about. He is not on the well-traveled road, you might say, from point A to point B, about the, the normal Bible stories that we tell. And yet, I think he is one of the most remarkable characters with regard to leadership. His name is Hezekiah. And let's say this about him from the beginning. He's God's man at God's time. The story that he has from 2 Kings 18 to 20 is a short story, only a mere blip, you might say, in the whole reign of the nation of Israel. But it is a significant moment because of what you heard my friend Mark read just a moment ago. Let's pray together and we'll begin. It is a glorious day to be in your house, Lord. And we praise you for the chance to share this time together. We open your word today to our friend Hezekiah. He's not unknown to us, but not really familiar. My prayer is that by the end of the day, we would recognize, Lord, just how much you want us to be like him. To trust you. To lead ourselves toward repentance and to lead others as well to let your word and your ways be ours and to trust you even when we can't see what you're doing. Meet with us now in this brief time, Lord. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's back up for a second from the story that you've heard, and let me give you a little bit of historical context. Our friend Hezekiah is king in about 700, 750 B.C., roughly about the same time as the prophet Isaiah. He'll come into the story a little later. Hezekiah is the ruler of the southern kingdom. And this might be a little confusing, so maybe if you have a physical Bible with you, then you'll look in the back where the Bible maps are. And probably your Bible has a map called the Divided Kingdom. On that map, you'll see that there are 10 tribes in the northern kingdom, and there are two tribes in the southern kingdom. Our friend Hezekiah rules over the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, the northern kingdom is Israel. The southern kingdom is Judah. This is where some get a little confused sometimes because we call the whole thing now Israel. In that day, though, it was two kingdoms, Israel and Judah. You might say, well, Darren, why is that? To answer that question, we have to go back to our friend King Solomon. Under King Solomon's reign, Israel rose to its highest prominence. It was a zenith that it has not equaled since then. Solomon erected the temple, and it is a glorious and grand achievement even these many centuries later. It stood as a testament not only to God's glory, but also to the covenant God had made with his people. It was there as a reminder, a constant source of encouragement and a reminder of God's promise made to deliver them to that land and a promise kept. It's into that context that we find Solomon. When Solomon dies, his son rises to the throne. His son is Rehoboam. Rehoboam has a chance to continue in the same vein that his father has started, but instead he chooses a different one and ultimately divides the kingdom. They will never be united again. The northern kingdom goes its own way. They develop their own line of kings, and they do things their own way, including rejecting the covenant that they'd made with God. 
They walked away from it and said, no, we don't have to listen to God. Who is God? We don't have to do things his way. We'll make other gods. We'll make little g gods and we'll worship them. We'll erect them in places that are convenient for us to get to because we don't want to have to go back to Jerusalem where the temple is and where, where that temple is constructed. We don't want to have to go back there, so we'll just do it our way. Have you ever made that mistake with God? Yeah, who of us hasn't? Thinking that we know better than he, that we can freely go our own way and not find any penalty in that. Oh, friends, it didn't take long for God to send prophets to tell them, change your direction, people. There is a judgment coming. They ignored all of those, boiling right past all the stop signs that God sent until finally in about 723 BC, the Assyrians ride into the northern kingdom and carry them off in slavery. Now you would think our friends in the southern kingdom where Hezekiah reigned, they would see that and go, that's not what we want. Surely we can be wiser. Surely we can do better. Well, they did for a while, but ultimately they too fell. And why? For the same reasons. There are a few kings, though, along the way who try to compel them back to the direction that they were supposed to be going all along. Hezekiah's father was not one of them. King Ahaz, as you see him listed there, led the people away from God. He erected high places, high places with false gods on top. Now, I know it might be hard for some of us who have lived in West Texas a long time, but there are these things called hills, and they have high spots on them. And up on these high spots, they erected things that they wanted people to worship. And a part of that was Asherah poles. You see that listed there in the passage that Mark read. It's sort of like a Native American totem pole. It was a, 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 a god that they worshipped, that they associated deity powers to, and they worshipped it. They'd make sacrifices to it, and they'd pray to it as if it had any capacity to answer those prayers. It's into this moment that our friend Hezekiah steps to be king at 25 years old. Now, let me just ask you, how many of you were ready to be king at 25 years old? Yeah, I didn't think so. Me neither. Our friend Hezekiah had a large load to carry. He would take the reins at 25 and stay until his death when he was 54 years old. I want you to bear that in mind as we talk about three big chapters in his life. Let's start with the most important one, Hezekiah the Reformer. So Hezekiah, <clears throat> Hezekiah leads the people, and he takes the place that God has ordained for him. <clears throat> and I want you to see it there in verse 3. Pick it up there with me. He did what was right in the eyes of God, according to all that, the that David his father had done. He removed the high places. He broke the pillars. He cut down the Asherah, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. Let's talk about this bronze serpent. Go back into the testimony of Exodus and you'll see that while they were walking on their way to the land of Israel, God sent a judgment upon them. And he said, here's what's going to happen. 
these snakes are going to bite you. But if you get bit and lift your eyes up to the serpent on the pole, then you will be delivered from the venom. It won't kill you. We still use that marker. If you look carefully at the seal of several medical associations, you'll see a serpent entwined on a pole. That is a reflection of this same thing. Now, in Moses' day, it was a necessary and valuable thing, but it had changed over the course of time. After all, it had been several hundred years by the time Hezekiah takes the reign. It had taken a life all its own, and now it was worshipped instead of the God that it was supposed to point to. Now, you might say, Darren, seriously, why are these people so thick? Why are they so dumb? Why can't they figure out that these gods are no gods at all? Why can't they acknowledge that these gods don't have any power, that their prayers are useless and their sacrifices don't mean a thing? Why can't they figure that out? I would ask you the same question, because we make the same mistake. Maybe we don't worship Asherah poles or bronze serpents, but we worship other things that are just as empty and just as false. Celebrity culture, let's just start there. Who died and made them so important? Why should I care what some of these idiots think? What difference does it make whether they agree with my position on what the Bible has to say or not? And yet I see all these masses go, well, they can't be wrong. They're so important. They're so famous. Yeah, they can be wrong. And not only can they, but they are. If they're giving you something besides what the Word of God says, they are wrong. Doesn't mean you can't enjoy their, their, their acting and their skills, but it certainly means you don't give them the authority to trump Scripture. This, friends, is exactly the mistake that Hezekiah is pushing back against. He wants them to understand these things are not God. So he broke those things down. Now, here's three things that he did to try to reform, to bring things back. Let's start with the most important one. He cleansed and consecrated the temple. Now, his story is spread not just into 2 Kings, but also the companion book, which is 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles 29 tells the story of when he consecrated and cleansed the temple. Whereas Ahaz, his father, had come in and made the temple a, a place to be defiled, whereas Ahaz had shut the doors and didn't let the priests do their thing anymore, Hezekiah went in and opened the doors, cleansed the temple, and here's the most important part of it. He consecrated the priests. He set them back on the path they should have been walking all along. Now, was the problem on the outside or the inside? Well, I think you might be able to see that the problem was within the heart. It wasn't just about fixing the building. It was about fixing their hearts. Maybe you're faced with a challenge right now, and you're wondering where God is in the midst of that. Here's where you start. Call on the name of the Lord in repentance. God, I'm sorry for the things I've done that were not in keeping with your word. Forgive me. Heal me from that. Liberate me. Free me from it. 
That's where Hezekiah started. That's where we must start. Here's the next thing he did. He celebrated the Passover. Now, when you read through Exodus, one of the most famous passages you'll find in there is the Passover. The night that Moses commanded the people to put blood on both sides of the door and over the top. That would be the marker that this house, this house, is to be passed over by the angel of death. Everybody that didn't have blood on their doors, they had someone dead in the house. Can I tell you today, my friends, this was a reminder of God's provision that he provided for his people, his protection, and the future that he had for his people. They'd stop celebrating it altogether. It's kind of hard to remember something that you never celebrate. It's kind of hard to remember something that you ignore altogether. So one of the first things that Hezekiah did is he brought back the Passover. According to the Old Testament, Jewish men are supposed to come to Jerusalem three times a year. Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. They were supposed to come to those worship services. All that had been stopped But now that the priests had been reconsecrated and the temple cleaned up, he set in motion celebration of the Passover as it always should have been, a celebration of God's deliverance, of a promise made and a promise kept. Herein is where he wanted his people, Hezekiah wanted his people to be anchored. God is enough. And the third thing we've already touched on He broke down the false gods. One of the hardest things about making a break with our past is putting our past away. Breaking from it means we break from it. This, friends, is harder than it sounds. And yet, if we're ever going to be who God has called us to be, we cannot allow our past to determine our future. We must instead press forward and say, God, deliver me from where I've been. And here's what you'll find, a union between you and God that was absent before that. United in worship means there's no elements missing because your past no longer defines you. I want to encourage you today, my friends, if there's something that Satan is using in your past to torture and torment you, Today is a good day to say to God, deliver me from it. I want to tell you a real short story about a man that I, that I knew. It's not a happy story. I much prefer to tell you happy stories, but this one is one that I think you need to hear because this is the part where a lot of people get hung up. They allow their past to determine everything. Well, God can't deliver me from it because what I've done is so awful. This man that I knew believed that God had taken his teenage sister's life in an auto accident because he was viewing porn. He lived with the shame and the guilt of that for a long time. And that that knife in his back, Satan just continued to twist it and to drive it in deeper and say, you're the reason your sister is dead. If you had been stronger, if you had been pure, then this wouldn't have happened. Oh, friends, that is just not so. Let's pause here and say, 
Either the cross of Christ is good enough to cover all sins or it's not good enough to cover any of them. If it's good enough to cover any of them, then it's good enough to cover all of them. And if it's good enough to cover all of them, then the song that Shumi sang a minute ago about the precious blood of Christ rewriting our history, that's true for us too. You see, Hezekiah knew that if he left those high places, it wouldn't be long before the people would be worshiping the false gods again. He had to leave it. So he led his people, not just in cleansing, but in repentance. Oh, that he would have stayed there. But life moves on, doesn't it? You know that old saying, if you don't like the weather in Texas, wait a minute, it'll change. You've heard that before. Such is the story of Hezekiah. For we move right straight out of that chapter of his life into the next one, and we find Hezekiah the fearful. Verses 8 through 16, we find Hezekiah in a very different place. You see, he had an enemy. The Assyrian king came to call. And the Assyrian king didn't come with Christmas cards. He wasn't coming to greet kindly. He was coming to rule. He wanted to overthrow the southern kingdom. After all, he already owned the northern kingdom. Why not, right? The, North, the, the Assyrian king, we know him by the name Sennacherib. Sennacherib showed up at the doorstep like a bully and said, you will bow down to me and you'll do it now. In fear, Hezekiah did not turn to God. Instead, he tried to buy his way out of it. According to the testimony of the word of the Lord in 2 Kings, Hezekiah dipped into the, the treasuries, gave him 11 tons of silver and a ton of gold. You might say, well, that's kind of backwards. Well, not for their culture. 11 tons of silver and a ton of gold. Sennacherib backed off. But this is the thing about bullies. It's never enough, never enough. So it wasn't long until Sennacherib was back. This time, when he came back this time, it was with 185,000 soldiers. He came standing at the gate ready to strike. Unlike, though, his earlier choice where Hezekiah was fearful, Hezekiah turned to the, the Lord and said, God, deliver your people. And God did. Don't tell me God can't deliver you from whatever enemy you're facing. For that very night, the angel of death, I believe the same one that passed over those houses at the Passover, came and visited Sennacherib's camp and wiped his army out. Sennacherib went home and was slaughtered by his own family. Can I tell you today, my friends, no enemy will stand against the hand of God. That's good news to me. I hope it is to you. Because there are times when those things that oppose me look fearful. They look big. They look scary. They look terrifying, in fact. And when I face them, it's easy for me to use my own logic and try to figure out a plan instead of going to the Lord and saying, what is your plan? Oh, friends, let us start with the Lord. Ask him first. Maybe this is a chance for him to flex those awesome deified muscles that he has and for him to say, I'll do it my way. Hezekiah has one more chapter. 
and it's one that is a difficult one. Hezekiah the sufferer. When we jump over to chapter 20, about halfway through the reign of King Hezekiah, he's about 40 years old, give or take. And Isaiah the prophet comes to see him. He comes with bad news. Hezekiah has gotten sick. And Hezekiah is hoping that Isaiah is bringing him a word of encouragement. Instead, Isaiah walks in and says, set your house in order. You are going to die. If you are making notes in your note sheet or your Bible, you can write Isaiah 38. You'll find the same story there. I want us to take a look at what Hezekiah did. Because this moment in time where Hezekiah is suffering is different than the first two chapters. But I believe this may be the piece that some of us most need today. You see, when Isaiah brought him that word, Hezekiah did something. He did something powerful and he did something deliberate. I want us to walk through what he did and take a look at what we might do as a result. One, according to 2 Kings 20, verse 2, Hezekiah focused on God. He turned his back, literally. He turned his back to the rest of the room and faced the wall. He didn't blame God. He turned his attention fully to him. Reality is that bad things happen to good people, and there are no good reasons for it. We have a choice to make. We can trust God when it's easy and trust God when it's hard, or we don't trust him at all. Looking for reasons or trying to invent reasons for why God allowed this will drive us over the edge. Our friend Hezekiah doesn't mix words. He just says, remember me, God. He turns his attention fully to God. And may we do likewise. When our moment of suffering comes, instead of being angry with God, instead of blaming God, instead of accusing him of double dealing, let us turn our attention to him and say, God, what will you teach me in this moment? Here's the second thing that he did. He was honest with his feelings. Chapter uh, 2 Kings 20 verse 3 says he wept bitterly. You ever wept bitter tears? Yeah, I guess all of us have. They're the honest ones. Maybe even the only honest ones. He was honest with his feelings. It would be one thing to try to stuff it down, but you know what? Some stuffings can't be stuffed forever. He doesn't do that. He says he wept bitterly. It reminds me forevermore of John eleven thirty six. Jesus wept. He knows our pain, he knows our sorrow. Here's the third thing that he did, he asked God to intervene. Now, he doesn't tell God how to do or what to do, he simply says, God, remember me. And that really is enough. Remember me, God. In that short prayer, he simply asks God to intervene. Do it your way, God, do it your way. 
This is a bold prayer because it means that I'm surrendering my own autonomy and my own sovereignty, what little I have, to God. That's uncomfortable for us. We're much happier keeping it ourselves. But God asks us to trust him instead. For our friend Hezekiah, he realizes that his days are numbered. And if death is to come, let it come at the hands of a merciful God. If healing is to come, it will be because God has stayed his judgment. He only asks for God's intervention. Let's pause here for just a moment and say a kind word about prayer. I've heard some well-meaning say, I don't want to ask God for something specific because I don't want to presume upon God's graces. I understand their intention. What they want to say in that is that, that, that God knows what's best and so they won't tell God what to do. But friends, if God knows our hearts, and he does, and he knows our minds, and he does, and he knows our future, and he does, then what harm is there in saying, God, will you make this right? Will you fix this? Will you do this my way? It's sort of like what Jesus prayed in Luke 23. Lord, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. And yet, what does Jesus say right behind that? Not my will, but yours be done. That's the balance. Asking God to intervene doesn't mean you demand he does it his, your way. An amazing thing happens, and we see it in Isaiah 38. Isaiah hasn't even gotten out of the palace yet when the Spirit of God taps him on the shoulder and says, hey, wait, wait a minute, Isaiah, change your plans. I want you to go back and tell Hezekiah something else. That fast, God can do it. That fast. Now, was it a long way from Hezekiah's bedroom to where God tapped him on the shoulder? I don't know, but I know this, doesn't matter. The Spirit of God moved and prompted Isaiah just like he had in the first instance. And Isaiah turned right around and went right back to Hezekiah and said, the Lord has heard your prayer. You've been granted 15 years more of life. In all the pages of Scripture, we don't have anything really that parallels this. In all the pages of Scripture, we don't find anything that says God answered it like that with a very specific and deliberate number of years left. But we do know this. God answered that prayer. God did remember him. And this is what Hezekiah did. He celebrated God's goodness when God did remember him. When God gave him that extra dose of life, it was a moment that Hezekiah never got over. For the next 15 years, he lived fully and to God's glory. And yes, yes, when he was 54 years of age, he died, but not before God had kept his promise. Here, friends, is a place we can hang our hat too. God has made promises to us as well. Like what, Darren? I will never leave you nor forsake you. Come to me who are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. In this world you'll have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. These are promises that we can rest in. And they're promises that Hezekiah didn't have, but you do.
Let me conclude with things Hezekiah would want you to know. These final five things are sort of a summation of Hezekiah's life and things that we can take home with us. One, repentance is always an option. Start now. The path back from wherever you might have started is long, but it gets longer if you wait. Let this day be the one that repentance comes for you and you say, Jesus, change my direction. Two, trusting God is an active event. It's not something passive. It's not something that falls on us out of the sky. It's not something that God runs over us with. It is instead something that I choose on a daily basis where I get up in the morning and I say, God, I'm going to trust you today. I'm going to rest in you today. I'm going to trust your wisdom. I'm going to ask for your wisdom. Lead my business dealings. Lead my school dealings. Lead my schoolwork. Lead my homework. Lead all of the elements that associate with my life. Give me, Lord, your wisdom. That's trusting God as an active event. Third, don't allow fear to tell you how big your God is. One of the great mistakes of Hezekiah's life was allowing his fear to determine how big God was. See, he put Sennacherib and all of his authority on one side of the scale, and he put God on the other, and he decided that Sennacherib was heavier. Oh, friends, make no mistake here. Our God is always a majority. And when I stand with him, I can be confident that I'm in the majority. It may not look that way, it may not feel that way, but with an eternal perspective, it always is. Fourth, when the valley comes, turn the right direction. Notice I said when the valley comes, not if. All of us will find a valley. What will we do when we get there? Finally, trust God's goodness even when you can't see it. It's still there. It's still there. I want to encourage you today, my friends. Take the example that Hezekiah has provided us and let it be that which directs you. For you have an advantage on him that I mentioned a moment ago. The same Jesus who stilled the seas. The same Jesus who raised Lazarus from the dead. The same Jesus who fed the 5,000 is the same Jesus who died on the cross to redeem your sins and was raised back to life three days later to grant you new life. Today is your day to encounter him. Maybe you never have. Maybe you've never encountered God in the way that I've described Hezekiah encountering God or that I just talked about with Jesus. God doesn't want just you to know about him. He wants you to know him in a personal way. If you'd like to talk about how that can happen for you, then meet me in just a moment. When we start singing, I'll be waiting for you right down here. Perhaps, just maybe you've already done that and things have kind of gone off the rails. You've allowed yourself or allowed someone else to direct you in another way. Here's good news. Repentance begins here. Maybe you need to come to this altar, bring something heavy and lay it down. 
Maybe you need to come and pray for somebody else. This altar is open for you. There's nothing magical about these steps, but there is something powerful about putting physical expression to a spiritual reality. Finally, maybe, just maybe, you need to be baptized. It's a great way to start your walk with Christ. It's the first step of Christian obedience. If you want to get that conversation started, come down and let's talk about how. Today is your day. Let's pray together. Jesus, we are so grateful for Hezekiah, for his example, for his mistakes, for the things that he got right and how he did it. It's a reminder, Lord, we don't have to be perfect to love and trust you. All we have to be willing is, have to do is be willing. I pray today, Lord, for all those who are hearing this, whether they're in this building or watching us on television, I pray today, Lord, your power where they are. And I pray, Lord, that you in your power would speak boldly a word of hope, a word of life, a word of truth. With a song that we'll sing, Lord, as I surrender all, I pray that we would mean it and that today would be the beginning of a new day with you. Guide us in this invitation time, Lord. We love you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.